Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome CMS Administrator Chiquita brooks Lashore on the President's proposed expansion of support for mental health and community health centers in his annual budget. We have a department-wide focus on mental health, really looking across all of the agencies to really see what we can do. Laurie Robertson joins us from factcheck.org, and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. CMS, three letters that make up an important acronym. For those in our audience who know what CMS stands for and does, we have the person in charge as our guest. It makes over $1 trillion in healthcare expenditures annually, and it's the largest healthcare payer in the entire country. And Chiquita brooks Lashore is the agency's administrator. During the Obama years, she played a key role in guiding the Affordable Care Act through passage and implementation. Brooks Lashure has decades of experience in the federal government on Capitol Hill. She's also the first black woman to lead the agency. Welcome. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome again to Conversations on Healthcare. You know, President Biden has just released his proposed budget for the next fiscal year. And of course, now Congress will weigh in. We know there are some important dollar amounts devoted to community health centers, mental health, HIV prevention, and other initiatives. I wonder if you could take our listeners through the budget and the thinking behind it. So thank you so much for the question. We are so excited about this president's budget. Um, as we all know, starting with mental health, the COVID-19 pandemic has just um, put such a strain on the mental health of Americans across the country. And all of us with children certainly know how much our nation's children have really suffered during this time period. And certainly uh, children who are in underserved communities are really at a crisis level. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And so we have a department-wide focus on mental health, really looking across all of the agencies to, to really see what we can do. And I would say about CMS in particular, our focus has been um, and is going to be on the programs we serve. So as you mentioned, I like to say the three Ms, Medicare, Medicaid and CHIP, marketplace coverage. So we're asking Congress for additional authority in the Medicare program. And you'll see from us continued emphasis in Medicaid and CHIP particularly around child health, pediatric care, um, and certainly in marketplace. So in um, commercial insurance, making sure that there's parity between mental health and physical health. So that's one piece that's a huge priority of the entire department and certainly us at CMS. Another priority is nursing home care. And as part of the State of the Union, the president released along with us a, a charge to uh, really look at our care in our nursing homes. And we release detail on and our budget asks for additional dollars from Congress to make sure that we are able to really survey nursing homes and help them come into compliance um, with the rules so that uh, our nation's seniors and people who are the most vulnerable are well taken care of. Those are two priorities, but health equity is a key priority of this administration. And we have all been working very hard uh, to advance health equity across our programs. I think a key part of our ability to address this is for CMS programs, the financing side, to really work with the other agencies, whether um, with 
CDC, to partner with NIH, to partner with HRSA, to partner with SAMHSA, all the other organizations here to really try to move the needle on a whole host of issues like maternal health. So that's really what this budget is, is really reflecting our work of trying to work together uh, to address some of the most pressing healthcare issues uh, facing our nation today. Well, thank you uh, for sharing those with us. Those are such critical issues to all of us who are engaged in, in healthcare and uh, in the communities. We're seeing exactly what you're describing. I wonder if I could just uh, get a question right up front uh, that's very much on people's minds right now. Health and Human Service Secretary Becerra has extended the COVID public health emergency declaration until April. We are all reading about the rise of the new Omicron subvariant BA2. Uh, and I wonder, having, having laid out your uh, health worker vaccine mandate for the institutions and organizations and practices that you certify or are responsible for, how, how long do you think you're going to have to continue that uh, health worker COVID vaccine mandate? We know uh, the Republicans would like those orders to end right now, but what are your thoughts as you look at what's coming down the road for us? Well, I would say requirements often help people react and respond. And I would say what we have seen is that the response to the requirements has really lifted up institutions and workers following the, the requirements. We're seeing booster rates and vaccination rates really growing. And, um, and it, so I think that there was such a focus on what are gonna be the hammers that we're going to use, but really what our approach has been, has been to work with um, hospitals and all sorts of facilities to help them come into compliance. And I think it's working very, very well. Um, to your larger question about how long are we gonna be doing this? I think that people, the scientists um, and all of my colleagues over on the other side of the house are working really hard to try to make sure that we're responding to the science. From our perspective, we'll be prepared for the public health emergency to end at some point. Um, but we're, as you probably saw, we put out guidance to the states uh, around when the public health emergency ends, not anticipating that it will end um, in April or X day or Y day, but really trying to make sure that everyone is prepared. And we will do the same for providers and others who are waiting for our guidance on some of the other emergencies that expire uh, when the public health emergency ends. You know, Administrator, I want to stay on the topic of the public health emergency. And CMS is asking states to explain how they'll handle eligibility and enrollment when Medicaid continuous uh, coverage that began during the pandemic comes to an end. And, and as you know, there are nearly 85 million people enrolled in Medicaid, all who could suddenly have their eligibility redetermined. I think it's fair to say that this could result in many Americans losing coverage. I wonder if you can weigh in here on your thoughts. Our entire agency is focused on what we call the great unwinding of, the, of, and we are very focused. And when I say the entire agency, we are very focused on making sure that we maintain the gains in coverage, um, whether people stay eligible for Medicaid or move to marketplace coverage or Medicare. Um, or commercial insurance, we are working very hard to make sure that we don't 
lose the gains that we have seen under the public health emergency. And that absolutely includes working with states. So our um, team that focuses on Medicaid is very closely monitoring and talking to states about how they're preparing um, and really trying to make sure that we keep the gains that we've experienced. That, that said, of course, states have um, the ability to make decisions. It's a shared responsibility between us. And so it's something that we have a close eye on. We're also working with state-based marketplaces. So the other side of the house to make sure that we, um, we keep coverage. A key part of holding on to the gains is really the subsidies that are in the American Rescue Plan, mm -hmm. because what we saw during this open enrollment were real gains for the people who are right above that Medicaid level. Right. And as we all know, that when a lot of our coverage, um, it's the leakiest between Medicaid and marketplace. And so I think that's actually a big part of the story about how do we hold on to these coverage gains, really having those subsidies makes a huge difference. Well, uh, Administrator, I wonder if I can get another uh, kind of specific question in that we're hearing a lot about, particularly uh, maybe from the folks in our audience today in the community health center space, uh, who are struggling with the, the nature of the good faith estimate that's part of the No Surprises Act. Uh, they already are managing sliding fee scale requirements and getting those details to patients. And they're asking if CMS is going to provide additional guidance to them about how to uh, maybe manage and simplify all these rules. Anything you'd like to say about that? So my favorite um, uh, response during the Obama years was, it's coming soon. So <laughs> that's my answer, it's coming soon. No, we definitely are hearing um, about the need for more clarification um, and the team is working very hard to get out all, all of the additional guidance that's necessary. Great. You know, each, each new administration makes changes, and we know CMS has been adjusting policies enacted uh, by the uh, Trump administration. Uh, you're stopping states from charging monthly premiums to newly eligible Medicaid enrollees, uh, and I know Georgia has a lawsuit against CMS saying this change is, quote, an arbitrary bait and switch of unprecedented magnitude. Uh, would you like to comment on uh, the policy uh, that you're trying to drive with these uh, important changes? Yeah, so broadly, I would say that we, the administration is firmly committed to making sure that we um, maintain the coverage of, uh, that people depend on. I mean, Medicaid is life changing, life saving. I had the privilege of being on a virtual um, call during right when Missouri had, um, uh, expanded coverage and got to hear from a woman who really said was talking about her own experience of mm -hmm. cancer and how this was changing her life because now she was going to have coverage. I didn't go anywhere during my time in the Obama years without being thanked by someone saying how it had affected their lives, changed their lives in many respects. And so for Medicaid, we want to make sure, particularly during a pandemic, that people had access to affordable coverage. And so that's that's what we're doing. We're really encouraging states to expand. We're encouraging states to um, move in innovative ways. We need to make sure that people can afford that coverage. 
administrator throughout uh, these last couple of very difficult years, health equity has been very much on the minds of all of us uh, in healthcare. A CMS Innovation Center, which looks to enhance uh, healthcare quality and innovation, as the name suggests, uh, has included advancing health equity as one of its key objectives. Tell us about this focus and what is the uh, CMS Innovation Center looking to do with this focus? I'm so excited about our agenda um, at CMS. And I would say that the Innovation Center has a charge and it's been focused on really trying to make sure we're thinking and testing models that will save costs and hopefully improve quality. The Innovation Center has had 10 years of experience. And what we're really trying to do is make sure that the person's experience is at the core of what the Innovation Center is doing and how we're thinking about it. And there's no more core thing to that than making sure that we are improving health equity and not that it's an afterthought as I think it has been for many, many years. We're really trying to think about how do we bring in um, a stronger lens of making sure that the, the innovations are focused on the underserved. And by underserved, you know, we've ad adopted a health equity definition for all of our programs at CMS of really making sure that every individual has a fair and just opportunity, regardless of the list of things that can keep you from, from that, which can include race and sexual orientation and socioeconomic status and geography. We're really trying to make sure that our programs are actually working positively to advance health equity, not that we hope it's a byproduct. And so as part of that, we're including in our models a requirement on equity plans. How are you going to um, try to address underserved populations in our latest announcement on ACO Reach, where we're actually going to pay a differential based on a, the entity's ability to move the needle on underserved populations. And that includes not just focusing on the people, but on the organizations like community health centers serve the underserved. So I, I, that's a big piece of making sure that we achieve health equity. It's not just about making sure there are people of color, et cetera, included in our data and what have you. It's making sure people with cultural competency, organizations that actually are in the communities where people need to be served are actually included in whatever innovative things we are doing. And so that's a big part of um, of ACO reach, as well as our broader strategy of really making sure we're thinking about the organizations that serve the people who who were concerned about achieving optimal health outcome. So good to hear that they're uh, using the equity lens as they look at everything uh, that they're doing. So uh, we applaud their work. I want to talk a little bit about the ACO REACH program. The Biden administration has changed the direct contracting model uh, after pushback from progressive lawmakers, but the House Progressive Caucus still wants to get rid of it, now known as ACO REACH. What do you say about their criticism that this accountable care organization model just adds an unneeded middleman? Well, pulling back and really looking at what's happening in the Medicare program is, is really important that we put um, all of our initiatives in context, which we are, we are really trying to do. Um, when you look at what's happening in the Medicare program overall, 
Medicare Advantage is growing and it is able to provide some services that we want to make sure that people who enroll in traditional Medicare are able to receive. And one big piece of that is coordinating care where we want to see entities have an incentive to make sure that we're looking at the whole person. And so as part of some of the changes that we made with ACO REACH, we really wanted to make sure that a provider perspective was stronger in the ACO REACH. So having more providers as part of the decision-making process has is a was a big part of, of some of the things that we want to mm -hmm. do. But I would say that we look at models like accountable care organizations and we've learned we have models in different parts of the the program that when done well can really make a difference in terms of people's lives and so we want to make sure that we're preserving some of those important elements and really building on those well it's hard to talk about healthcare without talking about money uh, of course uh, in our country but one of the areas that has never, uh, you know, maybe quite made sense to everybody uh, as anything more than maybe historical accident is uh, the difference in the payment schedules for uh, Medicaid and Medicare. A physician providing the exact same service to somebody covered under Medicare or Medicaid has possibly very significant different payments. The work of nurse practitioners for the last couple of decades has been reimbursed at 85% of the physician uh, pay schedule for the same service, even as we emphasize uh, team-based care and multidisciplinary teams. What are your thoughts about approaching some of these longstanding uh, inequities, if you will, in the payment system? Is that part of the charge to the organization at this point? Yes, I would say these um, sometimes, you know, a lot of the team, they would say, they would often hear from me, how much of this is in the law? How much of this is how we've done it? Um, and it really trying to tease out what do we have authority for and what can we do under our own authority? I do think that we, we as an agency are really focused on making sure that Medicaid is meaningful coverage. So whether it's Medicare or any of the other M's, we want it not to be a card in your pocket, but really that make sure that it is means you can see your doctor. And as part of that, we are um, we have a Medicaid access um, request for information where we're really looking at making sure that we are talking and understanding what's happening in the Medicaid program um, in terms of people getting adequate access to to care, whether it's making sure the benefits are there or making sure the providers. And certainly um, in the Medicare program, we um, will continue to look at what our levers are. We recently um, in our physician fee schedule included uh, an update that's going to integrate more information um, about uh, a, a variety of way, uh, ways that people get paid. That's the first update in 20 years of including some of this additional information. So we are certainly um, looking at what our levers are and thinking about ways that we can uh, try to address uh, payment, balancing that with um, what our statutory authority is and being good stewards of the trust funds. Well, I want to pull the thread on what we can do our, on our own authority, particularly on the issue of graduate medical education payments, which fall under CMS. And the recent uh, National Academies of Science report on primary care highlighted the need 
for the use of interprofessional teams. Uh, and I'm wondering, can CMS make changes to those graduate medical payments? Right now, we can only pay for the physicians and the dentist. Uh, how about the rest of the team? Is, is this an idea that is within your purview or does it require legislative action? So the team isn't sitting with me, but they would kick me under the chair <laughs> if they were to say, don't you dare commit to anything in public. <laughs> so I will have to say that I will um, look into it. I will say that um, we have, when it comes to GME, a lot of statutory requirements. We do pay um, hospitals and uh, that's usually our lever, but happy to look at, um, at some of these ideas and see, see if there are things that we can do. Well, perhaps then I'm going to rephrase my next question or they'll be coming and kicking you under the table if I ask <laughs> you about reimbursement for community health workers. But I'm really uh, at least as interested in asking you about your thoughts on this, the community health workers probably a group that maybe wasn't so much on the radar of CMS until we started moving much more in the direction of moving the needle on outcomes, on value-based plans, on the community engagement. Um, what's your thought on where community health workers fit into the kind of Medicare, Medicaid family at this point? I would say there's sort of new understanding of how important the community is to delivering health outcomes. I really got more of a perspective on that right before I uh, ended up being CMS administrator, really trying to work on some of these issues like maternal health, like equity, where you really do need the village to help. And then, of course, I think we all got an education when it came to COVID-19 of just hearing about people need to hear from trusted partners. And a lot of times those trusted partners are people in their communities, or they need the help from the doula or the person that connects them to the other supports. And just how health is one and probably one of the biggest determinants of how you are going to be able to live your best life um, and just how integrated all of that is. So we are certainly looking at ways that we can integrate community health workers into our payment processes. So whether it's through the Innovation Center of looking and through the Innovation Center, we have been able to have more flexibility and we will continue to look at our ability to do that in Medicare. And certainly in Medicaid, states have um, flexibility to do those things. And we um, recently approved a, a waiver in California that went further in terms of allowing um, some of those supports. And certainly we'll look at other state initiatives as well. Well, thank you, Administrator Brooks LaShore for these insights. And thanks to our audience for joining us for this talk about healthcare, how it's paid for, and all of the issues wrapped up in these decisions. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email address at chcradio.com. Again, Administrator, thank you for all the work you have done over a, a lifetime, and uh, we appreciate you taking time with us today. Have a great day. All right, you as well. Thanks so much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends that children get four doses of the polio vaccine, with the last dose given between ages four and six. But Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, when speaking against a potential fourth dose of the COVID-19 vaccines, wrongly suggested that the CDC doesn't recommend four shots of the polio vaccine. Green, a Republican lawmaker from Georgia, said that Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was, quote, recommending a fourth COVID vaccine shot. She then said that many of us were vaccinated against polio as children, adding, quote, I have never seen the CDC coming out saying, oh, you've got to get your second polio shot. You've got to get your third. You've got to get your fourth saying, quote, I think the question we all should ask is, when does it stop and when are enough vaccines enough? The CDC had not yet recommended a fourth COVID-19 mRNA vaccine shot to the general public when Green spoke. It only had done so for those who are moderately or severely immunocompromised. On March 29, however, the FDA authorized a second booster or fourth shot of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines for those age 50 and older and for those with immune deficiencies. The CDC's advice on the matter was expected to follow shortly. But as for polio, the CDC does, in fact, say you should get a second, third, and fourth shot as a child. The CDC says that the inactivated polio vaccine, the only polio vaccine administered in the U.S. since the year 2000, is given by shot in the leg or arm. The CDC recommends four doses, one dose at age two months, with the subsequent doses at ages four months old, six through 18 months old, and four through six years old. Adults who have never been vaccinated against polio and who are at higher risk of getting the disease due to their work or travel should get three doses, the CDC says. As for Green's reference to Fauci, he said on March 17 that the vulnerable may need that fourth dose of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines at some point due to waning vaccine immunity over time. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Asthma is one of the leading causes of trips to the emergency room for children, and there are often a correlation between high-density, low-income neighborhoods and more trips to the hospital for treatment and intervention. When officials at Boston Children's Hospital noticed a spike in asthma outbreaks in certain neighborhood clusters, they decided to do something about it. They launched the Community Asthma Initiative. They realized that if you could treat the environments in the patient's home, that might reduce the need to treat the patient in the emergency room. The home visiting efforts work with children and families that have been identified through their hospitalizations and emergency room visits as an identification of having poorly controlled asthma, and also it's a teachable moment. Dr. Elizabeth Wood heads the program and says the first step 
is to identify the frequent flyers, those kids who make repeated trips to the emergency room. Then they match with the community health worker who visits their home several times and assesses the home for asthma triggers. And they work on three areas, understanding asthma itself, understanding the medications and the need for control medications, and then working on the environmental issues. Families are given everything from HEPA filter vacuum cleaners to air purifiers, and the homes are monitored for the presence of pests or rodents. The result, says Dr. Wood, has been pretty dramatic. What's remarkable is that there was a 56% reduction in patients with any emergency department visits and 80% reduction in patients with any hospitalization. The program has been so successful it's being deployed in other hospital communities around the country. The Community Asthma Initiative, a simple reshifting of resources aimed at removing the cause of disease outbreaks in the community, leading to healthier patient populations. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.